In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. So as we saw at the beginning of the service, we are in uh, proper seven, the second Sunday of uh, after Pentecost, and we're uh, jumping right into the middle of Luke's gospel. And I want to commend you again that uh, to make this really beneficial, to make these several months from now until late November beneficial, we really need to sit down and read Luke's gospel in one sitting, two at the most. The Gospels are short. The books in the New Testament are short books. You can very easily sit down uh, with, you know, an hour or so and read through Luke's Gospel or do it in two sittings. But by doing that, what you're going to find is you're going to find the course of the book. You're going to get a sense of how all these bits fit together that we read on Sundays. You're going to see a a, a larger narrative. You're going to see a larger um, understanding. And and so when we go Sunday by Sunday and we read these little bits, they're going to fit in for you. And you're going to be able to see the the course of the story of what Luke is trying to to tell us. And it will be uh, very beneficial to do that. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a larger story. We're going to see the arc of salvation, the whole story of salvation from beginning to end. And that's what we're doing with uh, Zechariah. We're um, looking to see how is it that uh, Jesus fits into this whole story of how God saves his people, how he saves the whole world. And so to understand Zechariah, we're going to have to, again, I think, strap in our seatbelts and take that I-15 tour of salvation history. Are you ready to do that with me? Buckle up. We're going to take a really fast ride through salvation history. So we begin with Adam and Eve, right? The Lord makes all of creation and he puts Adam and Eve as his image bearers in the center of uh, creation. And uh, what do they do? They decide instead of following God, they're going to follow themselves. They're going to take power and they're going to take authority and they're going to take knowledge and understanding for themselves. They're going to grasp it rather than submitting to God. And when they do that, they remove themselves from paradise. And the Lord says, go forward and multiply. And so Adam and Eve have many children and the the world multiplies and mankind grows. And with their growth and population comes their growth and wickedness. They become more evil and they become more and more separate from God and so finally the Lord says I have to cleanse the world and so he washes the world he baptizes it with water and he saves again in that ark uh, that one vessel Noah and his three sons Shem, Ham and Japheth and after the world is cleansed Shem becomes the father of the Semitic peoples from whom Abraham descends and Abraham again is a lone righteous man like Noah Abraham stands with God and the Lord makes a promise with him he makes a covenant with him an agreement if you be uh, my, uh, my follower, if you be righteous before me, then I'll be your God. That's going to be the agreement. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the whole world through you by raising up a great nation from you. And so he sends Abram from Ur, from uh, Babylon, all the way, the Chaldees, all the way to the promised land. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob, you remember, is a wrestler. Jacob is always looking for God's blessings. Anything he can do to get the favor of God. And one night he wrestles with God and he won't let him go. And the Lord says, I'm going to bless you. And your name now is Israel. 
So Jacob becomes Israel, and Israel has 12 sons, and the 12 sons of Israel become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? They multiply, and you remember they follow their brother Joseph down into Egypt, into slavery. And the Lord promises, after several hundred years, to bring them out. And in those several hundred years, those 12 sons with their 12 families grow into a great tribe, into a great nation, and the Lord brings them out by the hand of Moses. He brings them out, and and Joshua, the, the Savior, he brings them into the promised land. You remember that, right? By bringing them through uh, the river Jordan and baptizing them and establishing them in the land of promise. But of course, the people never really follow the Lord. They never really keep their end of the bargain. They're constantly looking to their neighbors. What are they doing? What are they doing? They want to be like the others around them, and they ask for a king. And the Lord gives them Saul, and then he gives them David. And David becomes this preeminent king. David establishes a throne that the Lord says will never go away. He establishes the city of Jerusalem, which the Lord says will never go away. And he brings the tabernacle. Remember that tent where they worship the Lord? He brings it, and he brings it to Jerusalem, and he sets it upon that threshing floor. And it eventually, under David's son, becomes the temple of God where the people are to worship the Lord. The Lord says, I will dwell here with you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. But again, the people don't keep their part of the promise, and they fall into civil war, they fall into fighting, into politics and factions, and they get picked off by the great empires of the world, until finally the Babylonians come and take the people of Judea, the people of Jerusalem, and they take them into slavery in Babylon. And that is where Zechariah the prophet is born. Zechariah the prophet is born in Babylon as a slave, hearing the stories and being reminded of his family about the promises that God has made to his people. And he's part of that group that's allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And so when Zechariah goes back, he does a couple of things. He's not just about the business of rebuilding the walls and the temple, but he's reminding the people about what this agreement was in the first place. The agreement was, you be my people and I'll be your God. Right? It's an agreement. It's a partnership. You follow me in righteousness and I will protect you. And the central message of that promise is the message to David and to his family. What Zechariah understands, what all the prophets understand, is that the Lord has never left his promise just in one city, in one place, in one building. The Lord's purpose and creation was to make the entire world his temple. When he puts Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden, all of creation becomes the temple and they're the image bearers of God and the Lord never leaves that plan. And Zechariah is prophesying, he's saying, this is how the Lord is going to not only restore his promises and the temple, but he's restoring his first promise to all mankind. And he tells us what to prepare for in Jesus. He tells us exactly who Jesus is. The Messiah, the anointed one, right? The anointing oil that's poured over the head of the kings and the prophets, when the Lord says, this person is set aside for a special purpose. Right? What is the special purpose of the Messiah? And Zechariah tells us everything we need to know about Jesus. We don't even need to go to the New Testament. Take a look with me at Zechariah chapter 12. He says, The Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they will be like David. They will be like David. That means they will have the promise, and they will participate in being kings. Right? They will participate in this uh, ruling. And he says, the house of David shall be like God. 
What? What's that? The house of David shall be like God? That's giving us the sense that now this promise of the Messiah is more than a, a king, more than a general or a ruler. He's going to be like God. Like the angel that goes before. Right? So he's like this messenger of God. So now the promise is this messenger who's bringing forth the power of God, who's bringing forth the power of God. And he says, I will pour out on, this, on the house of David um, the spirit of grace and pleas of mercy. So that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced. Wait a minute, who's speaking here? This isn't Zechariah. This is the Lord. And the Lord's saying, they will look on me. Right? This is God speaking. He's saying, they will look on me as one they have pierced. The one that is pierced, the one who is sacrificed, the one who is like God, is God. God is saying, they will look on me. As God is the one who is pierced. So God himself is pierced. God himself is fulfilling the promise to David. God himself, the house of David, shall be like God. So he is like God. He is like David. He is God himself. He is pierced. He is crucified. Right? As God himself. And then they will mourn. They will realize what they've done as one mourns for an only child. He's the only child of God. Right? Jesus is the only Son of God. We become sons and daughters by adoption, which is wonderful. But He is the only child of God. And we will weep and mourn over one who is the firstborn. What does that mean, that He's the firstborn? If there's a firstborn, that means there's got to be a second and a third. So we've said He's the only child. How is He also firstborn? He's firstborn in His resurrection from the dead. He's the firstfruits of resurrection. He's the firstborn risen up from the dead. And that means that some will come after Him. Who will come after Him in the resurrection? That's us. Our promise is in Christ. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. And we share in that promise. So now we see that He is fulfilling the promise of David, that He will be pierced, that He will be mourned, that He is God Himself who is sacrificed. We see that He is the only Son of God. We see that He is the firstborn of the resurrection. We see all the promises now that we read in the Creed. Right? Everything in the Creed we've already read. Finally, what does He say? There shall be a fountain poured out. Who's that? The Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit we read is like a fountain, right? That pours forth. So He will place a fountain in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit that pours over us and feeds us, waters us, and sustains us. A fountain that isn't just there to make us feel good, right? That fountain doesn't just say, okay, here's what you need to, to get along or to feel good about yourself. This fountain cleanses us from sin and uncleanness, which means that's what we want. We're desiring to be cleansed from sin and uncleanness. We want to live as righteous people, right? Because we want the promises of Abraham. We want the promises that are made to the people of God. We don't know how to be made clean. We don't know how to do what's right. We don't understand what it is. But the Lord says, I will give you a fountain that will provide all of that for you. So now we see all the promises of the creed. And what is that? About three verses of Zechariah. This is in 520 B.C. The people of God know now exactly what they are to expect and the promise of the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, who is set apart to bring God's people back into that good covenant relationship. 
And how God fulfills that, how he does that in Jesus is answering the question of who is Jesus, which is really the whole question of Luke's gospel. When you read it, you're going to come back to me, I hope, and say, Father Howard, Luke is talking all about who is Jesus. That's the question that gets asked over and over and over again. And almost at the very end, you remember, Thomas comes after the eighth day and he finally sees Jesus risen from the dead and Jesus says, put your hand in my side and in my hand and Thomas says what? My Lord and my... They finally get it. Oh, this is God. But that's not the first time he gets identified as God in the Gospel of Luke. There are at least two times, you'll come back to me and correct me on this, there's at least two more times where Jesus gets called God. And guess who it is that calls him God? Demons. The demons say, Most Holy One of God. They know who he is. Sometimes people make a big deal about believing in God or not. That doesn't mean anything. The devil knows who God is. The demons know who God is. What does that do for them? People try to make faith sound like it's about believing or thinking something. That's like me saying, to be a faithful husband, I've got to believe that I'm married to Aaron. Yes, I was married to her. Does that mean anything? Are you a faithful husband? Well, I believe that we were married. You'd look at me and say, what? That's it? You all know that I'm married to Aaron. Does that make you faithful husbands? Does it? No! Because being a faithful husband is more than, yes, I believe that she's my wife. That means nothing. Believing who God is, believing who Jesus is, means that we're now at the level of demons. Hooray! What does it mean to be faithful? This point in the Gospel, chapter 9, comes right after the feeding of the 5,000. When we see the people out in the wilderness and hungry for bread, we should be immediately thinking of the Exodus. Right? The Exodus story. And we think about the crossing of the Red Sea, and we think about the miracle of the manna, and then we see Jesus performing the same miracle of manna in the feeding of the 5,000. And this is what sometimes we think we need. Well, I'd be faithful if only I saw the Red Sea, if only I had a little manna, if only I saw the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus asks at the end of that, he goes apart like we see him all the time, right? He, he performs miracles, he works with the crowds, and then he goes apart to pray, right? He goes apart to pray. That's a pattern that we follow. We do our work in the world, and then we go to our rooms, we go to the quiet place, and we pray. And he speaks to the disciples, and he says, Who do they say that I am? I just performed the miracle of God in the wilderness, and what did that do for them? Well, some think that you're John the Baptist, some think that you're Elijah, maybe some other prophet. In other words, did it bring them any closer to understanding who Jesus was? No, not a bit. Didn't do anything for them. The crowd had no idea. Peter goes one step closer and he says, you're the Messiah. But he has no understanding of what Messiah means. He doesn't understand what he's being saved from. He doesn't understand what that salvation will mean. Even in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection and the ascension, they're saying, okay, are we ready to start this kingdom of God thing? Get a good political party? Kick out the Romans? Reestablish the temple? Kill Herod? Right? They're still expecting 
that the kingdom of God was going to mean some political, some military answer. So the Messiah for him means what? He doesn't even know what Messiah means. This is why Jesus won't let them tell everybody that he's the Messiah. Because they didn't get that he would have to be killed. And so Jesus' response to Peter saying, you're the Messiah, is yes. And that means that I'm going to die. And that I'm going to uh, sacrifice myself. I'm going to be the Passover lamb. And guess what? You get to be a Passover lamb too. Isn't that a great promise? I'm going to die and you're going to die too. Right? That's the promise. What good does it do to have somebody sacrifice for us, for somebody to give up for us, if we don't do the same in return? This has been the beauty of Vacation Bible School this week. I heard from every adult that participated, everything they talked about was how the children served each other. How our older ones served our younger ones. And I heard about the younger ones coming to the older ones and saying, how can I help giving up what they wanted to do to do for another to serve another considering another what good does it do to have if Aaron sacrifices for me and I say good job but don't sacrifice myself do I understand her sacrifice if I don't then sacrifice for her do I understand it at all do I appreciate the gift at all At the level of reward and consequence? Reward and consequence are important in our lives. We don't need to get rid of them. But in the end, what do they mean? If we don't give out of love, out of faithfulness. And this is what St. Paul is trying to get across so desperately to the Galatians in chapter 3. He's talking about the difference between the law and faith. The law is wonderful, we have to have it. But the law operates at the level of reward and consequence. If I do what I'm supposed to do so that I can get a reward or avoid a consequence, I'm at the level of a small child. Again, it has to be there, but it's not enough. It's not enough because we want to not just do what's good. If I just did something for my family and I said, well, I went and I made him dinner and so I'm hoping that I get something in return for that. You'd look at me like, what kind of a schmo is this, right? He's just doing things for his family so he can get something back, which is nice. But not out of love? Not out of faithfulness? So St. Paul's saying the law has been given, but faithfulness. Right? And he says, what does that mean? Justified by faith, right? We've talked about justification being lined up, lined up according to Christ. And he talks about it in a couple of different ways. He says that we're in Christ, and he says we've put on Christ. We are baptized into Christ. That means into his life. That means into his sacrifice, into his love into his love for the world, into his desire for the salvation of the whole world, into his hunger for the renewal of all of creation. We put on Christ. What does that mean? We put on his acts. We put on his mercy. We put on his grace. That means we too submit ourselves. We too look for opportunities to love and to serve and to minister and to do good out of our love for others. We are in him 
And we put him on, and we do this every day. We do it every day in our prayers. We do it every day when we give thanksgiving. We do it all the time when we remember who Christ is and what his call to us is to be. And he says, when we become in Christ, we are no longer Gentile or Jew, slave or free, male or female. What does that mean? That means that all those things that divide us, all those things that separate us, and remember, race isn't even an idea in the scriptures, right? That's an 18th century European idea. In the scriptures, it's ethnicity, right? Which is very important. And he's saying, you give up being a Jew or a Gentile when you're in Christ, because he's renewing all of creation. He renews all of creation. You give up being male or female. That no longer separates you. You're serving everyone. Right? That doesn't mean I become a woman, but it means that I am serving all and my hunger is for the salvation of all. I give up my social standing. I give up being slave or free. Social status no longer matters. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, how you speak. We are in Christ and we have taken on his call for the salvation of the world. That's what we're called to do. And when we do that, we become Abraham's offspring. We too become children of Abraham. We too become children of promise and of faith. Zechariah understood that the Lord was not talking about salvation for one neighborhood. This is not about a little bit of geography in the Middle East. This is not about one building in Jerusalem. The Lord is making the entire creation His temple. We become temples of God with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We here are a temple of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are thousands, tens of thousands of churches and millions of believers all around the world right now who are becoming temples of God for the restoration of the whole world. And when we leave here today, we are ambassadors for that kingdom. We are leaving here today to take with us the call of Christ in love, to take His mercy, to take His faithfulness, to take His hunger and thirst for the renewal of the world. We take it everywhere we go. We will take it today and forevermore. Thanks be to God.